Welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. You can find out more about our church at hawkwood.ca. Now, here is Pastor Schaefer Parker with this week's message. Let's talk about this journey from one covenant to the next, from the covenant of creation. And of course, you remember that Adam and Eve broke the stipulations of the covenant of creation. In chapter 3, they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this was directly against God's command. They sinned, and they, they broke the covenant. Now, that does not mean that the covenant was no longer in force. God establishes the covenants. It simply means that they were now under the curse of the, of the, the stipulated curse of the, of the covenant, and that they and their descendants had to live under that curse from then on. Actually, as I've said before, the covenant of creation has never been uh, eliminated, never been abrogated. It's still in effect. It's been modified, it's been enhanced, it's been deepened by the covenants that follow, but the covenant of creation is still in effect. Now, with that in mind, let's remember that when Adam fell, his fall resulted in two lines of human descent. You remember that right away, and you can see this in chapter 4, the first couple of verses, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, and very shortly after that, and we'll discuss this in a little bit of detail in a moment, Cain killed Abel, and then shortly after that, uh, they had a third son named Seth. And if you look at the rest of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5, you'll discover that these two chapters are given to us to help us understand that from Adam, there sprang two lines of descent. Through Cain, a line of evil people who were opposed to God, and through Seth, a line of righteous people who loved God and lived for God. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 4, you'll discover that when Seth was born and when Seth had a son of his own, it was then, a man, a man named Enosh, it was then that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you have two lines of descent, the evil ones through Cain and those who follow God uh, through Seth. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. But um, the thing that we need to establish at the beginning is this, that the descendants of Cain refused to acknowledge either God or the covenant of creation. They, they defied God and they refused the covenant of creation while the descendants of Seth acknowledged the covenant. Interestingly enough, they accepted its penalties and they looked forward to the Savior that God had promised them. In Genesis 3.15, you'll remember that as God spoke to Eve after they had eaten the forbidden fruit, he reminded her or he told her, he promised her that through a woman would come a man who would, in fact, someday crush the head of the serpent. We understand that that's a, in fact, the scholars sometimes call it the proto-evangelium, that is the, the first gospel, because it really is that, that someday a woman would give birth to a man. We know now that it would be a virgin birth. We know now a lot about the miracles. The man would be both God and man. It would be the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this man would someday on the cross and in his resurrection crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy the, uh, the, the devil and his works. And so they believed in the promise that, that God gave, that is the line of Seth believed in the promise that God gave to, to Eve at the beginning. Now let's just go a little deeper and we'll break down what we find in the first part of chapter four. That is that first Eve gave birth to Cain who worked the ground, and then she gave birth to Abel, and he was a, a person who tended flocks. That would be probably flocks of sheep or flocks of goat, goats or maybe both kinds of flocks and so forth. 
First Cain and then Abel. But interestingly enough, in chapter 4, verse 1, notice what Eve says. She says, I have had a male child from the Lord or with the Lord's help. And there we have an indication that she was looking to God to fulfill his promise that one of her descendants would crush the serpent. Now, what does that mean? That means that Eve was a woman of faith. In fact, all the way through the story of Adam and Eve, after they sinned and God began to deal with them in that fashion, you find little hints that they were still a man and a woman of faith. They still trusted God. They still belonged to him. They were still living under the covenant and looking forward to a savior to come. And so I fully expect, to be honest with you, I fully expect to see Adam and Eve in heaven. There'll come a day when probably, because remember, eternity is a long time. And so there'll probably be a day when each of us will have an opportunity to just sit down with Adam and Eve at the, and just ask them to go to take us back to the beginning and tell us what it was really like to live in the garden before and what it was really like to live in the world after the fall and after they were cast out of the, the garden. But I, I say to you that there's every indication that Eve was a covenant believer who was looking in faith toward the coming Messiah. Now, interestingly enough, after the two boys are born, Cain and Abel, and we're given an idea about their professions. One is a gardener, a tiller of the soil. One is a herdsman who tended flocks. After that, the actual first scene in which we see these two men involved is, an, is a time of worship. I think that's a very significant thing in itself. But the brothers are first seen at worship as each brings a sacrifice, each brings an offering to worship God. But notice that only Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Now, how God let the brothers know which one was approved or which one was accepted and which was not, we don't know. I remember as a little boy, uh, as my parents read the, gospel, the, read the book of Genesis to us, uh, my, my parents discussed this with us. And there was some talk then, I can still recall, there was some talk that maybe the smoke from Abel's sacrifice ascended into the heavens and maybe God caused the, the smoke from, uh, from uh, Cain's sacrifice to, to kind of flow along the ground indicating, but we don't know, that's, that's pure speculation. We have no idea, but what we do know is that both men understood that one sacrifice was accepted, the other was rejected. Now. I've also heard, uh, I've read commentaries and I've heard sermons based on the idea that, that, um, that maybe God rejected Cain's sacrifice because it was not a blood sacrifice. It was some of the produce of, of, of his uh, gardening that he brought. And maybe that was what it was. But the fact is that later on, when Israel stands before God at Mount Sinai, you're going to discover that God commands both blood sacrifice and grain sacrifice and, 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 and the, the fruits of the ground, not just grain, but grapes and so forth. They're to bring some of, the sac uh, some of these things, the produce of their, of their gardening, and offer those to God along with the lambs and, the, the grain and so forth, the lambs and the goats and, and so forth. Israel was encouraged to bring both kinds. Listen, our God is consistent. He doesn't change. If he accepts grain offerings in the time of, of Israel, he would accept grain offerings in the time of Cain as well. So what is the difference? Why did God accept one and reject the other? The scripture's actually plain in verses three and four. If you want to read these for yourself or I'll read them to you just now. But in verse three, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Now, 
Listen carefully. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock along with their fat portions. That is to say, he offered the first and the best. When he came to worship God, he offered the first and the best. Cain brought, and again quoting from that passage, some of the land's produce. And the Hebrew scholars tell us that the indication is just whatever he could grab up along the way. Just He just grabbed a handful of something and brought it. Whatever came to hand. Later, God would instruct Israel to bring the firstborn of their livestock as well as the first fruits of the grain and the wine or the grape juice, the grapes. The first fruits of the firstborn and the first fruits. You can read about that in Exodus 22 and 2 Chronicles 31 and so forth. I think this leads us to a, a principle, an eternal principle, one that held, uh, held sway back then and holds sway even now here in the 21st century in A.D. times. And here's the principle. In worship, attitude is everything. By bringing our best to God, we show our heart's desire to honor Him. Now that's the principle. Attitude is everything in worship. By bringing our best to God, we show our heart's desire to honor Him. But now let me add by saying that throughout Scripture, one of the quickest ways to anger God is to make light of worship. As an example of what I'm talking about, I offer to you Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. This is the last book of the Old Testament. But I could have given you any 10 or 20 verses almost from this early part of Malachi as Malachi goes through this. But listen to what Malachi says. A son honors his father. Now this is actually God speaking through Malachi. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? God has an answer for that question. Verse 7, by presenting defiled food on my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you? When you say, the Lord's table is contemptible. Later in that same chapter, they're recorded as saying, oh, what a weariness the Sabbath is. We have to go through these motions again and again. By the way, I think that's exactly what Cain was doing. He saw Abel coming to worship God. He thought, you know what? I need to get in on, on that. I need to let everybody think I'm at least as good as my brother. And he just grabbed up some grain or whatever he had to hand and brought it and offered it to God with no love for God, no appreciation. He was just like the others. He was just... Saying what, like the priests in Malachi, he was just saying, what a weariness the Sabbath is. I just have to do this just to kind of get it done. When, and then, so when you say the Lord's table is contemptible, and in verse 8, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? And so again and again, throughout that passage in Malachi, God says, if you're going to worship me, bring your best. To show that your heart's attitude is a desire to honor him. Which raises a question, doesn't it, for you and for me, right here in the 21st century, well into the 21st century. This would have been probably 4,500 years ago that this happened, or a little more. Um, 4,600, 4,700 years, no, I'm sorry, maybe closer to 5,000 years ago. And I'm doing the math in my head, and, and that never works out right, but never mind. Um, how do we honor God and worship today under the new covenant? How do we bring God our best? And the first fruits of our offering. How do we do this? Well, I think Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is the answer. Therefore, brothers, Paul writes, 
By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Notice what comes next. This is your spiritual worship. Remember, we live in the period of the new covenant. All those Old Testament sacrifices have been summed up in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when he offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When his blood was shed for our sins, the the sacrificial system ended that day because the blood of Jesus Christ really does cleanse us from unrighteousness. So all those previous sacrifices could never take away sins, but this man offered one sacrifice for all sins forever and has been raised from the dead, ascended to the heavens, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so sacrifices are over as far as that sort of thing is concerned, but what can we bring? We don't bring the firstborn of our flock. We don't bring the first fruits of our, of our gardens or our, our fields. What do we bring? We bring ourselves. And we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That is to say, we say to God, I give you my life. Jesus gave his life for me. In return, I give you my life. That is to say, I take away my own ambition, my own preferences, my own pleasures. I give you my life. I know that whatever you call me to do is the right thing. I know that whatever you ask of me, I will give. I will praise you. I will worship you. I will serve you. I will give you my life as an instrument in your hands to be used in whatever way you see fit. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. And this, according to the God's Word translation, is the appropriate offering to bring to God in New Testament times. So that's how we align ourselves with Abel and distinguish ourselves from Cain, from the Old Testament. Now let's move on. As you know, because all of us have experienced this more than we care to admit, but as you know, in life, one sin always leads to another, usually a deeper sin, a worse sin, and so forth. And so we see that Cain sinned in worship, disrespecting God and so forth, and he soon sinned in a worse way, by murdering his brother. You've read the story, and if you haven't, just skim through that first half of chapter four as I'm speaking, and you'll see the story, how he was angry with Abel because God accepted his sacrifice, and he was thinking about killing him. God warned him not to do it. He was offered an opportunity to repent before he had done anything irrevocable, but he paid no attention. He went ahead and killed his brother anyway. That's the problem with sin. That's why you can't compromise with sin. That's why you can only destroy sin. That's why the scripture encourages us by the help of the Holy Spirit to mortify the flesh, that is to kill off our fleshly desires, our sinful desires, because if we don't kill them, they grow these desires. So what's interesting, and we'll move to the next slide now, through seven generations, you'll notice we're looking at the line of Cain, the Cainites, if you will, and these are outlined for us in Genesis 4, 17 through 24. Adam gave birth, or was the father of Cain. Eve gave birth. <laughs> Let's get that straight. But, uh, but Adam, gave, Adam was the father of Cain. Cain was the father of Enoch. Enoch was the father of Erad, and then Mahujael and Methushael, and then the seventh one down the list was a man named Lamech. He had three sons of his own, but we're not going to take time to talk about them today. Let's just look at Lamech for just a moment. Lamech was a bad man in every way. He was a kind of perfection of narcissism and evil. What started in Cain came to full flower in Lamech, shall we say. And notice what Lamech does. First, he marries two wives. 
the first man recorded in Scripture, and there's a reason for that, which I'll show you in just a moment. And then notice in verse 23 what he said to his wives, Ada and Zillah. He said, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. In this passage, we see that Lamech sinned three ways. The first one is he sinned sexually. That is to say, Lamech took two wives. He defied God's purpose in marriage as outlined for us in chapter 2. He wanted what he wanted. That is, he wasn't satisfied with Ada. He also wanted Zillah. He wanted what he wanted, and he took what he wanted without restraint. I feel like the microphone's awfully hot just now. If we could, at least where I'm standing, it's feeling hot. Maybe just turn it down a little bit. I don't know how that's affecting you guys, but it's affecting me. He wanted what he wanted, and he took what he wanted without restraint. He did not care that his actions degraded the humanity of both of his wives. And one of the interesting things that always happens is when people open themselves up to, what do you what, call it the sexual revolution. Let's go all the way back to the 1960s. When you open your lives up to the sexual revolution, it's always women who suffer the most. It's always women who are the most degraded. Men are degraded too, but all are impacted in a huge way. But women suffer in times of sexual license. And so he did not care then that by marrying two women, he degraded the humanity of both of his wives. And I'll just say it to you like this. Anywhere you see men and women defying the purposes of God through a sexuality that is divorced from marriage and divorced entirely from procreation. And again, I'm not speaking of those who are unable to have children. I'm talking about those who in one way or another deliberately divorce their sexuality from marriage and procreation. Whenever you see that happening, you can know that the spirit of Lamech is abroad in the land. We live in a time when the spirit of Lamech is abroad in the land. I'm going to show you more about that in just a moment. I'll just say this again, and then we'll move on. We live in a time when the spirit of Lamech in terms of sexual perversion, is abroad in the land. So we know that Lamech sinned sexually. Secondly, he sinned socially. He killed a man for a minor offense, and he gave a, a strong statement. It was more than a hint that he would kill other people if they got in his way. He was that, just that kind of guy. You get out of my way or you die. So he sinned socially. And thirdly, he sinned spiritually. Now, how did he sin spiritually? Interestingly enough, he believed that his murderous actions were righteous and he expected God to honor him and protect him just as he had honored and protected Cain. Now, if you look at back at chapter 4, verse 15, you'll discover that Cain woke up to something really um, kind of surprising to him. He suddenly realized, I killed my brother. Other people might want to kill me. One of the interesting things is when, when you, uh, you know, let murder loose in the land, it can come back to you. You kill, you can be killed. And he was aware of that, and he said, God, what are you going to do? My, my punishment is more than I can bear. Everybody's going to try to kill me. So God put a mark on Cain, and then God made a statement that everybody had to live with, and that was that Cain would be protected by God, and if anybody killed Cain, he would be avenged seven times. Chapter 4, verse 15, you can read it for yourself. He would be avenged seven times. But notice what Lamech says, that he plans to be avenged for his killings. If anybody kills him in response, he's going to be avenged 77 times. That is to say, he expected God to protect him even more than he had protected his forefather, Cain. You can hardly believe it. 
But Lamech was a religious man. He was a religious man. He expected God to bless him in his evil. Now just pause for a moment and reflect on that while I ask you a question or two. Can you think of a modern example of men who expect God to bless the most horrendous evils that can be perpetrated upon human beings? Is there anybody out there in the 21st century that expects God to bless murder, that expects God to bless rape, that expects God to bless the pillaging of of towns and the blowing up of innocent people? Is there anybody out there who expects God to bless them in that kind of work? (laughs) I heard somebody actually say out loud, ISIS. Yes, and behind ISIS is an ideology called Islam. Remember what I said at the beginning of this service today. We have to learn to distinguish between our Muslim neighbor, whom we're to love for Jesus' sake, and do our best to pray for, witness to, love them, bring them into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We love our Muslim neighbor, but we recognize at the same time that Islam is a horrid ideology that teaches God blesses all the things that God, in fact, has declared are evil. Every one of the Ten Commandments is broken by Islam, and, and, and a blessing is pronounced on the breaking of those commandments in Islam. And so we understand then that the spirit of Cain and the spirit of Lamech is abroad in the land in the 21st century in more ways than one. Now that brings us to the end of chapter four where Adam's third son, Seth, is born and then he has a son named Enosh. And we'll maybe go to the next slide. I think it's the one I want. Uh, Well, it it is, but uh, you know what? I'm gonna skip. No, let's read that. We'll leave that there. You're, You're doing the right thing, Neil. I'm just... I'm sort of playing it by ear as we go here. But, um, but the thing is, in the end of chapter 4, as you can see for yourself, it says there that it was in the birth of Seth and his son that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we understand later that it's through the line of Seth then that the Messiah would someday be born. And so we find Genesis 5.1 reading it like this. These are the family records of the descendants of Adam. On the day that God created man, notice the word created, its emphasis all the way through here. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them, collectively called them man. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after the birth of Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years. Then, because he was under the curse of his disobedience to God, he died. And then through chapter 5, we have the line through which the Messiah would come. Yet fallen man still has to die. And if you'll read through chapter 5, you'll discover over and over again about each one of these men that it says, then he died At the end of each verse, verse 12, then he died, verse 15, then he died, verse 18, then he died, verse 20, uh, 20, I guess it is, then he died, and so forth. Each one of these men, then he died. Over and over again, except for Enoch, down in verse 24. And now, yes, exactly. Then he was not there because God took him. Chapter 5, verse 24. Now, I want you to notice something on the chart behind me, and that is that the seventh from Adam during the line of Cain, we have Lamech. What happens there? We have this perfection of evil and narcissism. Interestingly enough, the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth is a man named Enoch, who is a perfection of faith and obedience toward God. And I'm not kidding when I say near perfection at least. 
because Enoch did not die. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says he did not experience death. For those early generations, Enoch was a foretaste of the blessing to all who are in Christ, to all who trust in either the Savior to come or the Savior who has come. Now, there's a verse that has meant a lot to me through the years, and I've sometimes prayed it with some of you when you were in trouble or in a time of really long-term trial or, or suffering, and, and I've, I've prayed with some of you, and, and it said, God, show them a sign of your goodness, a little indication that even though there's going to still be a period of struggle and, and a, a period of, of defeat and so forth, there's going to come a day of victory. Show them a sign of your goodness. And Psalm 86 says it. David said in a time of, his, of struggle in his own life, God, show me a sign of your goodness. My enemies will see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. And there's nothing wrong with you praying that for your own life. When you're struggling and it looks like the struggle is just never going to come to an end, don't hesitate to say, God, show me a sign of your goodness. Well, Enoch was a sign of God's goodness in the pre-flood world. Those early believers could look to Enoch and they could understand then that he was proof that there was such a thing as salvation, of restoration to God's presence and, and, and God's love and so forth. And he's also a sign for New Testament believers. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die ever, Jesus said to Martha. And then he says, do you believe this? God help us to say along with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe. The New Testament tells us that Enoch was one of the earliest and the strongest of all the, the old heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11:5. by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death and he was not to be found because God took him away. I love the little childhood story that probably a lot of us learned when we were children that Enoch spent his time walking with God and one day they walked so far together that God said, you know what, you're much closer to my house than you are to yours. Why don't you just come on home and stay with me? And that's obviously not in the Bible, but, but, but it, it expresses something real about Enoch's walk with God. For prior to his removal, not death, but his removal from the earth, he was approved since he had pleased God. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us the application of Enoch's life. Now without faith, it's impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. We can know for certain that Enoch did believe that God existed. He did believe that God rewarded those who eagerly sought him, and he was rewarded in his lifetime. And the same is true for us. If we seek him through the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, if we believe on Jesus who died for our sins on the cross, then we are seeking God through Christ and we too will be rewarded for our seeking. Now what's interesting to me, and, and Neil, let's see, is, does the next one, look, what's the next slide there? I didn't think so, I was afraid of that. Can you back up to the slide, two, one, the, back to the genealogy for a moment? Yeah, thanks. I should have made two copies of that and I, I just didn't do it, I apologize. But notice what happens here. After Enoch, the seventh from Adam, it's all downhill. Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Uh, by the time of Noah, that is the pre-flood fall of man, was comprehensive and total. You know what I mean by comprehensive and total? Look at chapter 6. Uh, notice what it says in verse 3 or verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. 
That's comprehensive and that's total. The whole world, with the exception of Noah and his three sons and their wives, as far as we know. By the time of Noah, the world had completely fallen. Now what had happened was, and we see this in the first part of chapter 6, when mankind began to multiply on the earth, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Now, I just want to take one second to eliminate one idea. We're, we're very close to being finished here, but I feel like there's a good stopping place and, and I don't want to leave you hanging. So, uh, and I know you're saying, please, Pastor, don't leave us hanging. Go on a few more minutes. Thank you, I heard that, and I will. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> thank you for your patience. But, uh, but the point is that when you read Genesis 6-1, this is not about angelic beings interbreeding with humans Jesus himself says that angels do not marry or give in marriage. They, they may have gender, but they don't have sexuality or sex. And the flood, by the way, is a judgment against man, not against angels or fallen angels. So we understand then that sons of God is a reference to the descendants of the line of Seth. And the sad truth is that the inhabitants of the pre-flood world had erased the distinction between Seth and Cain. Now the Sethites were living just like the Cainites. When Genesis 6-2 says the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves, the Bible is telling us that in their lust, the descendants of Seth, like Cain, had ignored the pattern for marriage that God had established back in chapter 2. Like Lamech, they wanted what they wanted and they went after it. Serial marriages, multiple divorces, polygamy, polyandry, ultimately every form of perversion, and as a result... On a practical level, you could no longer tell who belonged to God and who belonged to the earth or who belonged to the world. And I think there's an awfully strong indication there that we're in the same place today. That is to say that it's, it gets harder and harder for Christians to look different from the world. In fact, Christians, too many Christians no longer even want to separate themselves from the world. And so we need to ask ourselves what that's telling us about our own condition. Now we see a couple of things in Genesis 6-3 that I'll mention and then we'll be bringing this to a close. The first one is that all this willful sin was done in spite of the Holy Spirit's convicting presence. You can see that in verse 3 and notice then that God gave them 120 years to repent. God is never peremptory in his judgments. His patience is beyond imagination but so God said I'll give them 120 years to hear the message that their sin is going to lead to destruction the destruction of the whole earth, by the way. And after that, if they're still unrepentant, I will destroy the world. And we may ask, well, how did the people know that their time was limited? Well, 2 Peter 2, 5, and you'll see that on the screen. God protected Noah during that 120 years, a preacher of righteousness. He's building the boat. They're saying, why are you building this gigantic ark? There's never been a, a flood on the earth ever. What are you doing, Noah? And Noah was saying over and over again for 120 years, because of your sin, God is prepared to destroy the whole earth. Destruction is coming. Destruction is coming. The end is coming. The end is coming. And the people paid no attention. At the end of 120 years of preaching, he had zero converts outside his own family. And yet he was a faithful preacher of righteousness. And by doing so, as we read in the earlier scripture, he saved his household. So let's just understand then in closing that the end of the covenant of creation in the sense that it ended at the flood, it carries on in another way and we'll talk about that in the, in the uh, Noahic covenant when we get there, but the end of the covenant of creation ended in the destruction of creation. 
You see that? We're going to get to that with the flood. The end of the covenant of creation ended with the destruction of creation. Dear friends, the Bible makes it inescapable. Whatever we think we can think logically, whatever man thinks, God says over and over again and demonstrates over and over again that sin must be punished. And the punishment for ancient man's sin was the destruction of his life and the destruction of the world. Now, the only reason that God could say after the flood that he would no longer destroy the earth that way is because instead of channeling his wrath against the planet, there would come a day when he would channel his wrath against his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so on the day when Jesus hung on the cross, the infinite wrath of God against our sin was channeled toward his son, focused on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffered that, he suffered that, that agony and that, and that, that uh, wrath in our place. And because he suffered in our place, he is able to offer salvation to all who call upon the name of the Lord. It's as simple as that. In the Old Testament, before there was a savior, sin required the destruction of the world through the flood. It'll never have to be destroyed that way again because of the the wrath of God being focused on Jesus. And it's through faith in him that our sins are forgiven because they've been paid for. It's through faith in him that we receive eternal life. Let's bow our heads together if we will. I'm just gonna ask you just to take a minute or two. In fact, we're gonna just have about a minute of silence and we're gonna reflect on these things. We're gonna reflect on what it means for the spirit of Lamech to be abroad in the land. Whether we're talking about wrath and and anger and evil, whether we're talking about sexual perversion, whatever it is that we're talking about, the spirit of Lamech is abroad in the land. And and what happened at the end, just before the flood, everyone was so filled with the spirit of Lamech that you couldn't tell the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous any longer. And so the question we need to reflect on is where are we in our own lives? How much of the spirit of Lamech is is, uh, uh, reigning in our own lives? Well, the, the, uh, the opposite of the spirit of Lamech today is not the spirit of Cain or Seth, but rather the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. So call upon him. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to save you while yet you may. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. We want to be a blessing to our community. So please contact us with any questions or prayer requests that you have by calling the church at 403-239-6200 or through our website at www.hawkwood.ca. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church. We are on Twitter at Hawkwood Baptist. The sermon podcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. May God bless you this week.